Welcome everyone to another episode of the Campus Waterfowl Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Christians. On this episode of the podcast, we're continuing our Collegiate Waterfowl and Wetland Research Tour. This is, I believe, the last one before hunting season. So um, you're going to learn a bit about some things that they're doing here at Michigan State. We have, if you guys are watching the video on YouTube, you can see to my to my right, I got Ben here, who is the PhD student heading this research, um, and then we got John here with Ducks Unlimited and Scott with Michigan State, but I'll let them introduce themselves. I literally met Scott probably about 20 minutes ago, <laughs> so I'll let them do the introductions, but yeah, if you guys are listening to this podcast, we greatly appreciate it. I think you're going to be learning a ton in this episode, uh, learning about the research that they're doing here um, with Mallards. But I'll let Ben, the expert, talk about his research. Ben, do you want to start out with just a introduction, um, and then we can kind of go around the table here? Sure. My name is Ben Lukanen. I'm a PhD student here in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife at Michigan State University, and I'm working on this project to learn more about movements and population dynamics of Great Lakes mallards. Yep. Hi, Derek. I'm uh, John Calusi. I'm a director of conservation planning for the Great Lakes Atlantic region of Ducks Unlimited, and we have about a 21-state uh, quadrant of the northeast U.S. that we operate in. Hi, Derek. Thanks for having us and doing this. We appreciate it. I'm Scott Winterstein. I'm a professor here in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife at Michigan State University, and most of the work that I'm involved with has to do with population demographics and how do we estimate those okay. which fits very nicely in this project Ben's doing. Ben would you would, or I guess everyone kind of chime in here but kind of Ben mentioned the research that you're doing I can't even restate word for word what what you're doing uh, but would you mind talking through kind of what kind of sparked the uh, this project as a whole and why it's important for this area? Sure yeah I think it makes sense to kind of start from the beginning mm -hmm. so and maybe I should start out with what are Great Lakes mallards, right? Yeah, that would be a good defi definition to start with. Yeah, so if you think about mallards in North America, we have, you know, four flyways, the Atlantic, Mississippi, Central, and Pacific. And so if you, if you look at mallards that nest in and primarily use the Mississippi and Central flyways in the middle part of the continent, those are what are um, surveyed and managed as mid-continent mallards. And then a subset of that population nests in the Great Lakes region, which includes Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. And so those birds are what we're defining as Great Lakes mallards. Um, and that's the population that we're interested in for this research. Yeah. And it's part of that definition of that, that group of birds is that there are annual breeding population surveys that are conducted in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. And so we have pretty darn good long-term data from aerial surveys um, in the spring each year in terms of where the population is and how it's trending. And there there has been a noticeable long-term decline in Great Lakes mallards. Um, some some states, uh, Wisconsin and Minnesota, this last uh, survey period were slightly below the long-term average, so not, um, not super concerning, but Michigan's numbers continue to decline. And so you know, that kind of stimulated the whole, you know, idea and need for this research is like trying to figure out what's going on with Great Lakes mallards and why they're declining. And, and what we saw with the mid-continent mallards that nest in the prairie pothole region, you know, we saw record populations a few years back and a, a, a really nice trajectory <coughs> of increasing population growth. And we did not see the same thing happening in the Great Lakes mallards. At one time, those kind of parallel each other, and then they departed. And so that's really what what triggered 
interest in Great Lakes mallards and what what's going on with them. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add there is a, a pretty widespread drought across much of North America that included the prairies and the Great Lakes, um, kind of in the late late eighties and early nineties, mm-hmm. right? And after that, that's when mid-continent when when we came out of the drought, mid-continent mallards really increased, and so did Great Lakes mallards. Um, and traditionally, as John said, those populations had kind of tracked one another. But after that big increase, Great Lakes mallard abundance or um, mid-continent mallard abundance remained high, but Great Lakes mallard abundance in Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota all declined. And so we're kind of trying to figure out, you know, why have those trends become decoupled and what factors are limiting the Great Lakes mallard population. This one started to generate interest why we needed to do it based on really people looking at, at the declining numbers. And additionally, historically, there's been a pretty good relationship between Great Lakes water levels. As the water levels in the Great Lakes come up, mallard numbers have tended to come up, which probably means when the Great Lakes are up, water everywhere is more plentiful. And that relationship also got broken. Hmm. Great Lakes water levels came up, and the mallards didn't respond the way we predicted. And that coupled with what we were learning in the other studies got people, DU in particular here, interested in, all right, wait, what's going on here? Yeah, yeah. And oftentimes with research, you end up with more questions than answers. And we, we kind of had that conversation earlier today in the car. And it's and so, you know, we never answer everything. And, you know, we get information to help inform decisions. And, you know, you know for us, Habitat Programs, uh, Ducks Unlimited, that we're interested in things like that. But, but you know, despite all the research that's been done on mallards previously, there's still a lot to learn. Um, one thing that's, there's just constant change, right? The landscape is constantly changing. There's there's stressors on on the environment. There's a stressor on wetland habitat, remaining upland nesting habitat, grass uh, that mallards nest in. And, and you know, we have changing uh, climactic condition, conditions, um, you know, warming you know warmer winters you know milder falls and and so there's a whole lot of stuff going on that these birds are having to deal with and how they react to it and so we're you know we're kind of trying to piece the puzzle together or or pick it apart a little bit and try to figure out what what's really driving the change for these birds and the challenges they're facing and another thing that's happened ben i want to talk about this a little later as technology changes, some of the questions we can begin to ask change. Um, you know, 10 years ago, the genetic analyses that are being done as part of this project were not even possible to do. Mm-hmm. Even the telemetry technology has changed to the point that the information we get is so different. So yeah, they've helped shape where this project can go relative to past projects when John was wandering around with Yagi antennas. And yeah, I mean, yeah, triangulating, right, and and going to different points and compass bearings and, and trying to cross the lines to figure out where a bird was, and now we've got GPS locations. Everything's GPS, and so we're getting really, really pre- precise information on on where these birds are when, and, um, you know, the, the new technology has the ability to capture as many as many gps locations as you want you can program into these things within reason with the battery life right mm-hmm. but but you know a, a pretty standard right now is taking a, a location every hour and we've never been able to have that kind of level of detail and information how much do you think like with 
these transmitters or the uh, uh, being able to kind of give off that much information like you could go by the hour do you think even that much information is helps with analysis when it comes back to when you start writing and come back like do you think you need that much information or, it, or is it more information the better yeah it definitely helps you know we're limited you know historically when you know it was it was labor intensive time intensive for someone to physically go out there get a location you might might be lucky to have one per day right and that was probably even even a lot and now you know we have you know 48 locations a day in some cases and so that information allows us to ask more detailed questions um, and look at fine scale, you know, habitat selection, for example, mm-hmm. you know, almost, well, essentially what these ducks are doing every hour of the day, 24 hours a day. Yeah. I, I think it depends upon the questions you're trying to ask too. You know, if you're really interested in like microhabitat use then, you know, you may want to dial up the number of locations you're taking a day, but if you're, you know, looking at, migration, chronology, and, and broad-scale movements and things like that, you know, maybe a totally different, you know, way you program them than the amount of data that you want. It's a, it's an interest, interesting question that you raise because we, you know, raise the scientists and we t- talk about statistics and Scott can talk about that. More is better. Sample size. Larger N is always better. Mm-hmm. And it gives you the ability to have greater inference and tease apart differences, like real differences, and, uh, and uh, detect that. Another thing, as an example of, like Ben said, 48. So every half hour we can find these. Back when we were doing triangulation, like you said, you're lucky if you've got every animal, every bird once a day, oftentimes multiple days between locations. And if they moved, the only assumption you could do was, well, they moved in a straight line. I can connect this dot to this dot. Mm -hmm. And now we find out, yeah, sometimes they do, and sometimes they take a scenic route. <laughs> so just that micro habitat use, micro movement data has changed remarkably what we can do with that. Yeah, you think back to band recovery, you know, and the, the initial flyways and migration routes and kind of those connections. I mean, that was really the basis for a lot of how the flyways were developed in the migration corridors, along with some other things like radar and things like that that were used long ago but that we never had the ability you know you you place a band on a bird you might get lucky and recapture it if it's still alive but otherwise you know it's harvested by a hunter it's found dead and somebody turns in the band and it's like yeah you got point a and point b and that's it and then you just didn't know you know you don't know what happened in between there and that's that's what's really exciting about this new technology is that i mean we're we're having the potential now to answer questions across the entire life cycle and potentially over multiple years if we, you know, the radio performance, um, everything lines up and the batteries stay charged and the birds live multiple years, you know, we can get multiple migrations. And, you know, we're seeing tremendous differences in individual strategies. It's not all one strategy for bird. You know, individuals are, you know, hopscotching. Some are taking long-term flights, you know, you know, multiple stopovers, some are a few, it's it's just all over the board. Yeah, so it's really exciting and interesting. Although I'm sure sometimes Ben looks at the amount of data that he has to juggle <laughs> yeah. and deal with. <laughs> and, and cutting that back by a factor of 100 might not be, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, it's not always such an issue for me, but my laptop 
would would really appreciate it if it didn't have to churn through you know three three million locations. Sounds like your advisor needs to invest in a better computer for you. <laughs> I, I I told him if we needed to, we'd get some supercomputer time. But we got, we got a pretty good one. Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, in you know, in those days of you know, if you had a hundred locations on a on an individual, that was huge. Mm-hmm. And now you know, like Ben's saying, across all these birds, we're in the millions. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it opens up your, your sample size question, and that opens up all sorts of potential analyses. And Scott could speak to this better than me. I'm way out of that realm. But you know, you know how many how many points you know is adequate? Mm-hmm. You know, in, to get the same kind of answer and same kind of information. You know, using all the data versus a, a partition of it, a subsample of it, if you will. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and that can help inform future studies. Yeah, you know? I was, I, that's where I was kind of thinking. Where it's like, because it just seems like a lot of research that's going on now is like questions that we've had from previous projects and it's like the projects that are happening now with like these high-tech gps transmitters it's like what kind of questions can be formed to then maybe inspire future projects and it's like who knows what's even yeah coming it, around the corner it, and, it, and we've had to look at stuff independently by life cycle period you know so we were involved in a breeding study on great lakes mallards long ago but we didn't have the ability to evaluate you know what happened on breeding grounds, you know, and how that may affect subsequent, subsequent migration, uh, condition of birds, you know, winter survival. And it's just like now it's just like we have this opportunity with this technology to start linking so-called cross-seasonal effects, you know, mm-hmm. things that might happen on uh, wintering areas or staging areas may affect productivity of birds on the breeding grounds. And so it's like trying to tease that, you know, tease that apart and get at that stuff. It's like it's pretty cutting edge and exciting place where we are. And, and there are a lot of people using this technology on a variety of species right now. So mm-hmm. we're, we're going to learn a whole lot, and Ben's right on the leading edge of it, too, with this study. And yeah. so it's really cool. And this project, how long are we into this project, Ben, again? We started marking birds in spring of 2021. Okay. And how many birds have you guys put transmitters on since? Right now we're a little over 530 hen mallards across five Great Lakes states with transmitters. Yeah, so it's a really, we have a, an awesome group of partners. The only way that we've achieved the, the sample size and the great geographic scope is through partnerships. That's a, yeah, talking about yeah. information, jeez. Oh, yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> I think back to when we, we worked on some satellite transmitter studies, a, a little the predecessor to this kind of more current technology where you use satellites, but it was GPS. But I mean, we had a sample size of 68 hen black ducks and we thought we were rocking and rolling <laughs> and he's got 500 plus. And, you know, there's a study, a, a similar study going on in, uh, with Eastern mallards, you know, that we're hoping to put 1200 units on and there's a black duck study that's got a sample size of 500. And so we're, we're sitting at a point where we're going to start learning a whole lot about these birds, about movement ecology and, you know, it's, we talked about mining data. I mean, Ben will probably be retired by the time, you know, he won't have, I mean, you could mine this data for all sorts of questions yeah. beyond the scope of his project. And, you know, as a grad student, you've got a, a fixed window to like look at this stuff and your tendency is to want to look at all these things, but you got to stay focused on your project objectives and you can only do too much, you know, so much, you know, mm-hmm. um, on that. But, but, you know, we'll have this data forever moving forward. And, and people can mine it for other questions. You know, how do birds interact with refuge during the hunting season and things like that. There's some researchers looking at that down in Tennessee and to the, wow. to the south of us and things along those lines. But, 
but those aren't our objectives with this study. So, mm -hmm. but that data will be there collected and there. available forever for, for people to mine and, and learn more. So. Yeah. It's, it's crazy to think about. Yeah. Wrap your head around like, yeah, well, how much, what kind of questions can come out of all this data that's, that Ben's kind of getting. <laughs> so it's kind of, yeah, kind of fun I, to see. I mean, just, yeah. What drives migration? You know, every year we hear, where are the ducks? Oh, it was late migration or they just didn't show up. Well, did they? or not you know and it's like now it's like we can have evidence you know it's just like yep we can look at the timestamps of the gps locations like yeah these birds were they migrated they they were available during the hunting season but they were just smarter than we were and you know found the safe spots to live another day mm -hmm. and survive and and reproduce ben so when it comes to just kind of the lifestyle of being a grad student kind of what is your i guess day-to-day -day schedule look like yeah this type of work sure yeah it's very very seasonally dependent um sort of like right now in the summer i'm working very closely with michigan dnr who bans ducks every year um so we're working with them to put gps transmitters on mallards and that's primarily um, our main field work um, we're marking birds primarily in the summer and a few in the spring um, then the rest of the year, um, I balance my time between um, coursework and then working on you know, analyses. And even once in a while, I get to do kind of outreach stuff like this. Kind of before, because you're a PhD student, you've been doing this stuff for a while now. Um, where did you do your undergrad and master's program at? I did my undergrad right here at Michigan State okay. in FW. Yep, did the wildlife concentration and then right after that, I moved on to a master's degree at Iowa State, where we looked at movement and survival of Canada geese in urban and rural areas. So um, kind of a kind of two similar sources of data. We used both banding data and GPS data from those geese. And now I've came back to Michigan State and um, working on the Mallard Project. Did anything surprise you coming into um, becoming a PhD student that you I guess didn't were you didn't really expect? part of the the gig was at all any surprises there um i guess not not really surprises um in terms of kind of student life but i guess some of the some of the surprises have come in terms of what we're starting to learn with this with this data mm -hmm. what, are, what are some of the things that you're seeing for me the the biggest surprise is that um i should back up maybe a little bit and say so all these birds that were marking with transmitters were also taking a blood sample Okay. And with that blood sample, um, we can look at the bird's genotype. So we can determine whether each bird we put a transmitter on is a, a pure wild mallard or if that bird is a hybrid between a wild and a domestic mallard. And we've been fortunate to be able to partner with Dr. Phil Lavretsky at the University of Texas, El Paso. And so he's helping us analyze those blood samples and to determine, you know, do we have wild birds, do we have hybrids? And we have a surprising proportion of, of hybrid mallards in the Great Lakes region. Um, somewhere around 60% of the birds we put transmitters on um, have been wild and about 40% hybrids. And so that, that was really pretty surprising. It's not something that, that I had expected. How does that then change how you kind of look at the landscape then in the research, I guess? Yeah, so one of the things we're able to do then is to pair those genetic results with behavior. So we can see what do wild birds do, what do hybrids do, and we're finding that birds that are less than about 50% wild are behaving quite different than wild mallards. 
So those hybrids that are more on the domestic end of the spectrum um, tend to move around less. They tend to be pretty sedentary. Um, their daily movement distances are about half that of wild birds. They tend to be less likely to migrate and they have um, high selection for developed land cover or high selection for ur urban areas, essentially cities. Okay. And when, so now having that information and too, like, yeah, once this project is all kind of said and done, kind of where does it go from there? I guess, how does this information help kind of just everyone? In addition to the GPS transmitter data, we're also looking at banding data, which is been accumulated for a very long time. Um, we're going to look at the last 30 years worth of banding data, and so we're going to get a very in-depth perspective on what individual birds do using our GPS transmitter data, and then we're going to be able to pair that and look at population dynamics. So the banding data in combination with aerial survey data allows us to estimate population size, survival, productivity, or how many ducklings are, are produced on average. And so we'll be able to um, kind of pair those, those individual behaviors with population dynamics and hopefully determine what population parameters are limiting for the population and what are some of the things that are affecting those parameters. Can we digest that some more? <laughs> yeah, so maybe describe, maybe step back and describe population parameters yeah, in simplistic yeah. terms, break it down to, yeah, so you know. So population parameters are anything that affects how many mallards we have. Okay. So what's the survival rate? Um, what's the birth rate? Or how many juvenile mallards are recruited into the population? So what is the nest success? Um, what is duckling survival? And ultimately, if you know a hen has a successful, successful nest, ducklings survive. Those are recruited individuals in the population. And then one of the other ones we're interested in is emigration. So whether birds are um, leaving the population, because that could be one way that we're losing mallards. And emigration is not very well assessed um, by banning data alone. And that's one of the benefits of these GPS transmitters is we're able to see if female mallards that hatch in the Great Lakes return to the Great Lakes to nest, or are they leaving to nest elsewhere, for example, out in the prairie pothole region? Yep. And we've never been able to like look at that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then, and then you know, if we get multiple years of data from hens, it's like, is it are they returning to the same general area? Are they are they showing fidelity, phylopatry, to nesting areas, and those types of things? And and you know, the, the other questions are, do we have do we have rural birds that move into urban environments, and vice versa? I mean, there's all sorts of questions that can be answered. And I I think what's going to be also interesting is is the habitat use part of this and then linking some of the, the parameters that Ben talked about to habitat use, you know, what, what does a hen, what does a successful hen look like in terms of, of habitat use and then that detailed information. And it's like, is that something that we can use as a template or a, a, a blueprint, if you will, to develop habitat programs that are most meaningful for creating successful situations for mallards. And that's, that's where, Ducks Unlimited comes in. I mean, that's our product on the ground, habitat conservation. That's part of what my job is, is investing in research like this. It's very applied that we can turn around and use that to inform our habitat programs. And um, that's being science-based and trying to be efficient as, as much as we can with our, our limited dollars that we all have. Yeah. I mean, these, these fine-scale data let us do lots of things, particularly this urban wild 
comparison can lead to a, a lot of areas. Uh, one ex example, who knows if it'll end up there, but the aerial surveys we do to count ducks mm -hmm. don't survey urban areas. And, you know, if those ducks, if we got ducks moving into urban areas more than the vice versa, more than ones moving out of urban areas, they're not getting counted. Um, they're not susceptible to the hunting season if they're in these urban areas. So what impact does that have? And how is that related to the genetic information that Ben's getting? So that could, you know, if we start looking for future things that can be done, that's just one possibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You bring up you bring up the the survey. Actually, the the numbers from when this podcast was recorded. I think they were released last last week. The the B pop numbers. Um, but one thing, kind of, yeah, we kind of look at with urban areas. It's yeah, you don't want like. DU did they did a video about how those are conducted and how they use the planes. It's like in the video I think they said they're they're flying pretty low to the ground. So obviously you're not gonna fly a plane that low to the ground in in an urban area. But do you think the the potential of like drone technology could get to that point where you could survey out ducks in those urban areas? That's a good question. I'm not sure you could do it the scale necessary. It's it's labor intensive. It's not like you could just throw a drone up in the air and let it fly it a transect and be done with it, you know, and record information. You still, I mean, there are parameters with FFA, FAA that you need to, you know, you have need to be trained. You can't fly in certain areas. Um, sometimes permits are involved in things like that. And, and yeah, and it always has to be in line of sight. Mm -hmm. So that could be a real problem in urban environments. Um, yeah, we, we get seduced a bit by watching the movies with the military drones <laughs> and their drones can stay in the air for hours and hours at a time. Yeah, we don't have that technology yet. <laughs> yeah, as, no. as John said, line of sight, pretty limited time in the air. Um, well, so and, you can and then you're going to encounter the public that privacy issues, you know, they see a drone flying low over their backyard wetland and things like that. And so there's, there's, there's personal privacy issues, too, that come into play there. You know, a little, little anecdote about this, this project. Ben did his undergraduate here, and he did a senior thesis with me. And so I knew Ben's capabilities, and then he went away to do a master's project. And before he left, we'd even talked about him coming back to MSU to do his Ph.D. And I thought, this would be great. Love to have Ben come back. And this project originally had been slated to be funded a year earlier than when Ben was going to be available. So he would have been in the middle of his master's program the year this project was going to start, which meant he would not have been able to come do it. And at the very last minute, there were some budget issues, and they said, well, we can't start this project this year. We're going to have to realign the funding it's just not going to happen this year. That delayed everything a year. And at that point, Ben was done with his master's degree. And he could be one of the, we interviewed about three or four people for this. We had a committee. Ben came out on top. Yep, this is the guy we want. And Ben's been here and the project has just been going great. 
but if it had been funded the year before, we'd be sitting with somebody else now. Yeah. <laughs> so it was meant to be. It was meant yeah. to be. Yeah. You know, and mm-hmm. as Ben said before, partnerships. I mean, we had to explain to the partners, yeah, we're going to have to wait a year. <laughs> mm-hmm. But we'll do it. We'll do it. We just have to wait a year. I think that's something you bring up a good point kind of, and I don't think I've had discussions about this on previous the research podcast, but just all the stuff that happens behind the scenes to even get a project going. Yeah. So like even yeah. like we got uh, John here, like how does it, how does DU, I guess, look at finding projects or like how do you work with even universities? It seems like to then get yeah. Ben. I, I, I think it's, work? I think it's, it starts with a question, an idea, you know, an issue. And in this case, Great Lakes Mallard declines. And so there we've all, we all have interest in that. Obviously, Ducks Unlimited has interest in that. I have interest in that. And so, you know, um, we work together. A- another way that we develop research ideas is through our habitat joint venture planning. We have a waterfowl committee that developed a waterfowl strategy, bird habitat models, and things like that. Not to get too deep in the weeds, but, you know, we made a lot of assumptions with our habitat models to come up with habitat objectives. And so there's always information um, uncertainty and information gaps. And so that's, that's part of it too. So we've identified research priorities. So a lot of that is, it comes out of that as well. And so, you know, and then it's just, it's communication. Our group of people that are interested in waterfowl and wetlands and uh, is pretty small. And we know, we know folks, uh, all the academics across the country in my region, I work with a number of them, um, sometimes out of, out of the region as well. But we have good relationships and so it's communication and coming up with ideas and then it's then it's from there it's like okay that's good so you start fleshing out a you know a one page kind of scope kind of thing and start putting some budget numbers together what's going to take to and you know get a phd student like ben and um field work and radio transmitter costs and so you put pen to paper and get a you know a draft budget together and then you just start looking for partners and funding. And it's like, you know, because we're not handed a budget. You know, Scott's not given a multi-million dollar budget to go out and do research. And, and either is Ben, and I'm not either. So that's part of my job at Ducks Unlimited is trying to develop partnerships and unearth money. And, and um, in this case, we had a very generous donor um, in our region step forward and give us a substantial amount of money to, to, to buy a whack of transmitters for this yeah. study. And so that was... That kind of was part of my job, finding that money. And I, mm-hmm. I knew, you know, talking to Scott and, and Ben that they were looking for money that was out there on the street. You know, they were drumming the drumming the bushes, you know, beating <laughs> the bushes for money. And so it's like, okay, it's like I'll see if I can find some money. And, and it's you know, this is an important topic for us, for our organization, for waterfowl conservation in general. And, and um, we were lucky enough to, to find some and come through. And uh, so that was really good. But that's that's kind of how that that operates and it's like it's super rewarding i feel like it's not only the science and the information that we're getting out of this we're also getting professionals like ben you know Mm -hmm. so when he finishes up he's going to be on the market for a job and he's going to be a guy that can step into my role someday or or scott if he chooses to go academia and those types of things so it's like for us we're helping create that next generation up waterfowl and wetland professionals and that's i think that's super important for ducks unlimited and for me personally i i enjoy it enjoy interacting with scott enjoy interacting mm-hmm. with ben i get out in the field once in a while they make an old guy feel good um you know get my hands on a duck today so that was super you know makes it all worthwhile mm-hmm. yeah i'd also say um success breeds success so you start off with the 
I mean, our earlier projects with with DU were smaller, and they were successful. And you've had that successful working relationship, and you come to John and say, "We got this project, but boy, we should really could really use some money for transmitters." And there they are. Um, yeah. So yeah, if that first project hadn't gone well, I may have not looked so hard, you know. <laughs> no. Well, but yeah, but it is working relationships. It really is, you know. It's like you need to be comfortable with each other. There needs to be trust and, and those types of things and, and expectations and accountability and and we have all that and and those are, you know, you want to you want to work and surround yourself with people you enjoy doing work with, and and make it the most enriching experience that you can have, you know. And that's that's really our job for. For, for Ben, too, is like create an yeah. environment where he is being fully enriched in his Ph.D. program here and getting everything out of it he can, and he becomes the best professional that he can be. Yeah, he gets to have all the fun, right? <laughs> <laughs> out in mean, the field. Out in the field. You know, sometimes well, it's – I know it's not the fun fun, but, you know, I mean, part of my job as a major professor is to take care of all that other stuff in the background so Ben doesn't have to deal with it so he can – you know, be the one out there doing the field work, doing yeah. the, the science. Um, and fortunately on this one, like you say, the opportunity to interact with a wider group of people is just great for his professional development. You know, you've been to flyway meetings, you've done workshops, you know, all the partners, other places. Um, you're doing, you know, podcasts like this. Yeah. Yeah. Trust me, when I was yeah. a graduate student, there's nothing close to this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you might you might get asked to, you know, comment on an article or be a part of an article. That, that was about as far as it went when I was in grad school. And, and uh, yeah, there wasn't any radio show or podcast or anything <laughs> like that. Yeah, I'm I'm usually the one, you know, the, the one partner that's, like, um, pushing all these opportunities because our communications folks, I mean, it's important for Ducks Unlimited to get the word out on what we're doing and, and why, and the research is intriguing, and it, 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 it's – it helps. It helps uh, pr- proliferate, you know, interest in research and science. Our program with Ducks Unlimited and stimulates funding and things like that. But, but then I gotta, you know, reach out to Ben, and Ben's gotta reach out to Don. It's like, hey, you guys okay with having Derek come up and, <laughs> you know, and oh, by the way, you know, another guy from NPR wants to come out, you know, and it's just like it. It's all part of it, though, you know, because, you know it's a great opportunity for Ben because that's going to be part of his professional career moving forward too. And it's just like, you got to be out front on a lot of the stuff and it's, and it's an important part of our job too. You know, we, we tend to be a little introverted as scientists, you know, and, and uh, you know, that, that got beat out of me pretty hard when I came to work for Ducks Unlimited because, you know, you get thrown out there in all sorts of situations. You know, I can't, not, I can't even count how many presentations I've done and, and where and all those kinds of things. But it's, it's super rewarding though because you get excited, you know, talking about what you're working on. And then you see people light up and that's, you know, if you can express that enthusiasm to the crowd, it gets them jazzed up too. And, mm-hmm. and um, Well, they're there and we – we kind of touched on this on our last podcast, whether they're duck hunters or outdoorsmen or not, like the oper- outreach opportunities like like this and just any type of media outlet is just a way to kind of expand our audience and then kind of share how, and hopefully, yeah, they, they see how much we love doing this type of stuff and uh, helps pretty much fund kind of what, what we're doing. So if they can too, uh, like if they're purchasing outdoor goods or, or th- and things like that to help fund projects like this. Yeah, yeah, and just and and letting folks know that you know 
people do care about what's going on with Great Lakes Mallards, and, and we're doing something about it. We are investing money in research, and, you know, Ducks Unlimited is, Michigan DNR is, Michigan State University is. We've got uh, uh, Franklin College in Indiana. We've got Illinois Natural History Survey and the Illinois DNR, Wisconsin DNR. Who am I missing? Um, I don't want to leave it out, Ben, so help me out. we got uh, Winers Point Marsh, Marsh Conservancy, Conservancy in Ohio. Uh, we've got the... U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Upper Mississippi and Great Lakes Joint Venture, Joint Venture yep. and related the Great Lakes Fish and Wildlife Restoration Act. Mm. And um, let's see who else. Uh, University of Texas, El Paso. Yep. 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 Yeah, you, so you think of like pulling that all together and, yeah. uh, you know, into a complete package. It's, it's pretty impressive. But, yeah. I mean, to do a project at the scale, I mean, that's what's necessary. Because, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. nobody can... Nobody could put all the resources together for a project like this on their own. And if they do, I'd like to know who they're getting the yeah. money from. <laughs> <laughs> well, what you alluded to also is these opportunities to reach beyond that, you know, we're not just singing to the choir anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, this information gets out to people who would never, you know, would never think that they're going to go duck hunting. They would never think about these things, but start to realize the broader importance of these you know and you start layering on things like climate change you start layering on things like you know habitat change and you know hey wait a minute what if we get start having these wildfires that come through here what in the world does that mean for i think it just raises that awareness across the board mm -hmm. and that's a, a great opportunity yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think hearing firsthand from professionals that are doing the work come rather than just someone leading like assumptions is just crucial so having yeah. the information out there is much better than people drawing assumptions. so yeah um ben what are some some of the things over the years that um probably the most memorable moments for you doing doing research and things what are some things that you've done yeah well kind of extending what we were just talking about it's really a privilege to work with this great group of partners it's a awesome awesome group, group of people and you know, as a as a kid, I was always, you know, I, I grew up a, a hunter and a fisherman. I was always interested in, you know, what are the ducks doing during the the bulk of the time that we're not watching them. <laughs> and now with with this new technology, we get just a really comprehensive picture across a huge geographic region, what so many different individual ducks are doing. And so that's that's been really rewarding, um, just to be able to kind of you know get get a glimpse into the the secret life of of ducks so to speak <laughs> <laughs> well i mean this the partners on this project to go back have been great we one individual who used to be in wisconsin took a job in louisiana but said i got to stay on the project i want to stay involved i started <laughs> with you guys you know that kind of buy in you get it it's almost priceless you start you build something like that which is ben i mean ben is the one in charge of care and feeding of the partners that's a lot on your plate is it a lot of pressure for you um initially yeah i was a little, I was a little concerned you know we've got people from state and federal agencies non-governmental university it's just you know a really diverse group and thought, how how the heck am i gonna coordinate you know, all these folks and make sure everyone knows what's going on. But, you know, I think a lot of the success you know, comes from the fact that we have such great partners. I don't, you know, it's just, it's just been awesome to work with everybody and everybody's really invested in the project because everyone's interested 
you know, in the results and what we're going to learn and how we're going to be able to apply that to, you know, benefit ducks and people interested in ducks. And you put out your monthly updates. That helps. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm, yep. I'm one of the needier partners, and, you know, because we have, <laughs> we have reporting responsibilities to, to our donors that support this type of work. And Ben has been super about providing information for that and, and sharing that with me and, and helping me with, um, you know, put the reports together and get that information out because that, that only helps us in the future, like stewarding that, that, that donor, that partner. And, um, you know, the next time we have a project like this come around, that's really important. We can go back to that, that individual and, and, uh, and ask them again, you know, for, for support. That's really important. But Ben puts out pretty pictures each month of the duck movements that it it helps when you have really cool cool data and yeah. you, you get the get to watch where these ducks are going and what they're doing for sure yeah that's that's the, the i think that's the the whiz bang stuff that the, the people really like to see you know it's like oh wow that's really cool you know and then uh yeah it, it's so pointing out those really interesting interesting things and you know i i created a, a slide of some some irregular nest sites you know i don't know that anything's irregular for a mallard i was just going to ask that is there any outliers or like what are some crazy birds how they doing crazy things out there all over the map really yeah all over the map and this was just from another this was from another another mallard study that we have going on in a similar project that i talked about previously but yeah you know in the crotch of a tree and a flower pot next to somebody's driveway you know um we had had one that was literally nesting in a landscaping feature of an outdoor spa, like a public, like a spa you could go to a private spa, like right next to this hot tub, you know. And it's just like, you know, get it's it's just crazy. Uh, and then you have the more typical stuff, you know. You had uh, one up in in Maine and some of the most gnarly brush that you'd ever seen, and you're like, oh wow, that's pretty cool. And then we had one up near in Quebec near Montreal, where this female decided to nest in this in this uh on, in this uh, manure pit and it was like a concrete sided structure around manure pit you know like waist high you know on a human being and choked with a phragmites mat you know and it's just like well that's a great choice to you know have a successful nest but what are you going to do when the ducklings hatch mm-hmm. it's like they're not going to get out of there the female can hop out or fly out but the ducklings are stuck there, so I don't know if that farmer decided to put a little plank in there and hatch or mm-hmm. what happened there. But anyway, but yeah, it's just all over the board. So it's and that's what's interesting to me too on this is like we think of mallards as being like this really super adaptable species, and you see that in a lot. They're generalists, but the fact that this this population here is struggling is kind of intriguing in itself. It's just like well, mallards should be doing great, mm-hmm. but but they're not. Ben, when you're looking at like kind of the the migration of these mallards, is there like obviously all of them are you're capturing in Michigan? Um, is there areas where a lot of them are migrating to when they go south that are more like where, where would you say the majority of them are going? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, maybe I'll start out with the fact that the majority of our ducks choose not to migrate. Really. Yep, especially birds that spend a lot of time in urban areas, which tend to be the birds that have more domestic ancestry. And, you know, you know, one of the things we're, you know, considering with climate change is that winters are, are becoming more mild up here. Ducks are able to find more um, areas with open water. And in urban areas, oftentimes they're receiving supplemental feed. 
So we definitely see individuals um, take advantage of that. When you know, our birds do migrate, it's primarily wild birds that are that are departing on migration, but they're behaving a lot like we might expect Canada geese to in that they seem to only go as far south as they need to mm. to find food in open water. We haven't had any birds that have gone farther south than Tennessee, and most are kind of in that Tennessee to Kentucky to even um, southern Indiana and Ohio mm. latitude. How does it, because you guys get a decent amount of snow up here, right? Is it more snow rather than cold? It's variable. Kind of back and forth. <laughs> Lately, it's kind of hit or miss, and we've had some winters okay. that we haven't had a whole lot of snow, and then there's, you know, we get a, a dump, and then it's not long lived. And it's, I, it's, so I grew up in Wisconsin, and I remember as a kid, like waist high snow and stuff like that, and just deep cold, frigid cold through February and big snow banks and snow cover everywhere and i just don't feel like we see that There's like we much. used to see There's not much snow cover yeah. on the fields anymore well you consider that it's like yeah well in the great lakes i think last year i mean did they even freeze over entirely i don't think they did and so yeah. that's kind of a barometer too it's like when you don't have these you don't have water bodies freezing over and you don't have snow cover it's just like it's like ben said it's like there's nothing really driving mallards they're big bodied birds like canada geese and they can store a lot of fat they can survive for several days without foraging, um, you know, and so they're pretty hardy birds, and they'll just they'll just do what they got to do to to get by, and you know. In, in this area, what what's the main food source for mallards? <clears throat> what, what do they primarily eat? In so that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the answer is it depends, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of wetland foods. Yeah, obviously, moist soil plants that produce the high energy seeds, but then also, you know, mallards are very adept at exploiting waste grain in cornfields and 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 winter wheat fields that have been harvested. Um, yeah, so I mean, there's they they exploit a lot of a lot of different things. Yeah, you'll find them with down on the ag fields here on the campus along with the Canada geese just foraging through for waste corn, the stuff that came off the fields yeah. there too. Yeah, I mean, they, they waterfowl are pretty pretty remarkable, mallards included, in terms of, like, their ability to exploit resources and mm -hmm. taking advantage of, of things, you know. Um, I, it, I'm just thinking back to some black duck research we did years ago, and we actually found, you know, killifish, in black ducks and you're like well, like are they out there actively foraging for killifish you know they're kind of hard to catch but then you think about like a salt marsh pan a low tide and they get stranded in there and it's like well this individual bird that happened to be harvested and then we did a food habits uh sample on was just chock full of killifish and the opportunity probably presented itself and probably abnormal you know that's not the norm but mm -hmm. but they're just it just to me that just speaks to their their adaptability and you know how they take advantage of situations and exploit resources. Yeah, but just, but as you get at the, the changing climate stuff becomes a big, a big issue on, on some of this. And, mm -hmm. you know, Ben can speak to it a bit more, but every, everybody in your thesis, your dissertation, you guys are like, okay, well tell us what's going to happen next. What are your predictions? And makes predicting really difficult. Mm -hmm. Is there anything, um, like, I don't know if it would be worth doing, but, like, like air temperatures day-to-day, -day, like, is there tools that to then correlate, yeah, the day-to-day -day temperatures to, like, now with its transmitter technology, like, you can see how temperatures are, 
I don't well, I don't know if temperatures is a good not like thing to look at whether or not it moves ducks or not, but I don't know if you're able to see any driving forces of why ducks move. I think it I think temperature is part of it, but it's also related to consecutive temperature days. Um, there has been some research done on that by Dr. Mike Schumer. He developed a weather severity index, which included temperature, but then also snow cover. And, you know, there's definitely an influence of those two things that drives, drives birds to migrate. And um, there's going to be some situations with some of these urban birds, you know, that are on river systems around, you know, Grand Ledge or wherever that they're getting hand feed and stuff like that, that can scratch out a living. But in those types of conditions, like multi-day sub-zero temperatures and you're going to see you're going to see movements of, of of most birds you you would hope you would expect to yeah um, and for our our wild birds those those two factors temperature and snow cover are are good predictors of when they choose to migrate and one of the benefits of having such a broad geographic sample is that we've you know put transmitters on birds all the way from indiana and ohio up to the upper peninsula of michigan and northern wisconsin and so we can see, you know, birds that are on the northern edge of the Great Lakes range are more impacted by those weather events mm-hmm. um, and climate um, because, you know, those are more extreme up there. And so those are birds that are, tend to be more likely to migrate than birds in the southern Great Lakes. Are you, like, constantly hitting refresh when those, like, cold pushes <laughs> come through, like, wanting to see if these birds are moving? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, these transmitters are programmed to send data once every 24 hours as long as they have a good cell cell signal. So I'm able to monitor essentially what the birds are doing for the last 24 hours and yeah, it's it can become a little addicting to <laughs> to, to log in and yeah. and look at the data and see, wow, look at that bird, you know, just moved 300 miles south or whatever. So, yep, definitely. That's cool. Yeah, that it is cool and then you also need to be perusing the data for mortalities periodically because we're, you know, these transmitters aren't, aren't cheap, you know, they're eleven, twelve hundred dollars depending upon the exchange rate and, and you want them back. Right. And so, you know, we try to coordinate that. Ben, Ben probably is doing all that and then looking through that. And when we have a mortality, it's like, he's, con- he's connecting with somebody locally, whether it's in Michigan or Wisconsin to see if somebody can run out there and see if they can find it. And uh, we had, we had three birds last year that my son and I went out to try to find. And these were birds that actually crossed over and came over here from from the Eastern Mallard study. They were marked on the Atlantic coast during winter and came over here to breed, and they weren't so successful. <laughs> yeah, we had three of them. And, but it's, it's remarkable how accurate the, the location data is because, you know, I was able to just take my phone out and put the coordinate in and, and walk right to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my son found it before I did. He's better eyes than younger eyes than me, but we, have, you know, we're able to find too. So, but yeah, there's, there's, it's a, yeah, there's that, and then just looking at the location information and and looking at weather events and how that moves birds. And do you have like favorite birds in your in your population? <laughs> like ones that have you named them at all? <laughs> no, well, they, not, not names you can say on the air. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they each have their own unique identifier, which is a you know, alphanumeric, but they don't have, you know, names like, like, <laughs> like Sue or whatever. So I, I do kind of have birds that, you know, I, I wouldn't really call them my favorite, but like they tend to be really interesting. Mm. Um, so, I'll, you know, I kind of am partial to, to those birds, um, or just, just want them to survive so I can, you know, continue to see what they're doing. But one of the things you tend to learn when you monitor this many birds so closely is that they really are all individuals. Mm. 
you, you could have three, let's just say three adult hen mallards that you catch and put transmitters on at one site. And you think, well, but those birds are probably going to hang out and do the same thing. And they may go do three totally different things. And, hmm. and they kind of have their own little little tendencies and quirks. Hmm. It's really cool to see. Yeah. Yeah. W- one thing I might just add um, for some, some of your listeners might be waterfowl hunters. And so um, if you were happy to, or uh, lucky enough to harvest one of these transmitters um, from this study, it has my email and phone number on the side so i'd ask that you give me a call or shoot me an email and let you know let me know that you harvested the bird because that's good information one of the things we're looking at are cost specific mortality so whether birds are killed by predators or, or, or by hunters it also helps us you know to be able to get the transmitter back and use it on another bird as long as it's not damaged to collect more data um, so that helps us out and um also, if you're lucky enough to harvest a banded bird, report your bands because that's the other side of this study is that we're looking at banding data, and um, we really rely on, on hunters. Hunters are the reason that we know as much as we do about mallards because of the sheer number of band recoveries that we're able to get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's super important. That's a good point. Yep. And they don't just – and when they um, call the – like call you about – the transmitter they usually have something in return for them as well yep that's a good point yep they get a reward um what we've been doing is the hunter's choice of either a replica gps transmitter or a 50 dollar cabela's or bass pro shops gift card nice so no there's no need like obviously a lot a lot of hunters tend to want to mount those birds because they do have the backpack on there's no need for you to keep the backpack you get a replica that's right and if you do Ben will know where you're at. <laughs> That's right. Yep. Yeah. There yeah. there have been multiple occasions where you see a duck flying around and goes from the marsh to the parking lot, and then the transmitter goes down the road at 70 miles an hour, and then there's a bunch of locations on top of someone's house, and they don't call it in. I'm going to figure out who lives there and, and give you a call. Yeah. I think I guess, yeah, I didn't even touch on that. You mentioned speed. So what kind of measurements are you guys getting from these um, transmitters? Yeah, it's it's remarkable how many different things they they collect. So they take obviously a GPS location. Um, they take what's called an accelerometer reading. So you can think of it a lot like the tilt sensor in your smartphone that changes kind of you know if you tilt to the side the screen changes. Okay. So it measures um, the gravitational acceleration in three dimensions. So we can see, you know, what what position the transmitter is in. That helps us to detect mortalities. We can also use that to estimate the bird's behavior at each location. We can, you know, we can see if a bird is um, sitting in one spot and it's not moving around a whole lot. We can infer that bird's incubating a nest, for example. Um, transmitters also take temperature, speed, altitude, um, I think maybe a compass bearing. Um, I think, that, I think those are the main ones. Yeah, I don't think I've looked at all of them. I pull an accelerometer chart up and I'll scroll down to some and look at temperature and a few things like that, but I don't think I've ever made it to the, the full the full bottom. But One more that comes to mind is light intensity. They, they have a small solar panel on top of the transmitter that allows it to recharge, and so we can see if that solar panel is getting light or not. Hmm. Is there any information like there, whether or not like mallards are during the day in chat, like shadow shadow cover or like covered areas versus like sun areas are you able to use that information for anything you think yeah it's something we can infer um you know it'd be a combination of looking at you know a satellite image or a 
um, land cover map for that location and because sometimes the transmitter might not be getting sun because it's cloudy or you know sometimes a brutal preen feather or two that partially covers the transmitter solar panel but but yeah you can you can um, use that to somewhat infer kind of the amount of sun a bird's getting yeah <laughs> we, we noticed on a lot of our birds that we in, inferred were nesting incubating if you will that you know we saw declines in in, in battery recharge mm-hmm. and and um yeah you're just kind of hopeful that it doesn't zero out technically they should come back from zeroing out the battery going to to almost nothing and Mm -hmm. when they get back in in sunlight again but sometimes it's hard for those birds you know those transmitters to recover um but yeah i mean with some of the cover that these birds are nesting in it's not surprising Mm -hmm. you know we've it's uh you know it's all over the place but yeah i think ben you had you had a, a few birds on one wetland and one one transmitter was 100 percent, and the other one was you know what like 60 or something like that somewhere mm-hmm. less you know and it's just like it's in the same wetland same environment it's like well it could be just something behavioral where that that hen was you know covering up with feathers and you know you don't want that thing sticking up so high on the back that it becomes you know an obstruction for the bird in terms of flight and drag and then you know the higher it sits up there's opportunities for icing and things like that that can occur if the wrong conditions happen you know real wind and cold temperatures and rain and freezing rain things like that and you can get ice accumulation on those things and the higher the panels sit up the, the worse it can be and so we're trying to you know you don't want to deal with that so there's there's trade-offs with you know feather coverage and the, the hen kind of covering things up you know when she's you know tucked up and comfortable ball and and uh and then the other thing is just while well, sitting on a nest with overhead cover you know yeah. you have that too well, we covered a lot of ground but, i thought like yeah no ton of information ton of information there um any kind of final thoughts you guys have on the project of kind of how things are going or um what the future holds i guess sure yeah i'm really thankful to to be a part of the project it's you know essentially a a dream come true for me. I set, set a goal for myself to be a wildlife research biologist at some point. I've really come to appreciate waterfowl. So this is, you know, an amazing opportunity. I'm really learning a lot. And I think the combination of this awesome GPS data set and banding data set is going to really allow us to make some useful inferences about population dynamics that managers can put um, into practice to hopefully improve the Great Lakes mallard population. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to see, you know, what, what Ben finds with the analyses and, and that. And, you know, we're getting tidbits here and there. You know, you don't dive really dive into your analysis until you collect all the data. You know, you do bits and pieces of it, but, you know, that's only part of the picture. And so I'm, that's the tip of the iceberg. So I'm looking forward to seeing the whole picture and the, the, all the iceberg and reading his dissertation and seeing publications and, and um, you know, and in turn using that information to inform what we do yeah you you start these things at the beginning john talked about you know it's a piece of paper and and you try to convince the people with the money um in this case you know great lakes fish and wildlife restoration fund at first it's like yeah great and another study they're going to put radios on another bird and follow you know no it's it's way more than that and this project has developed into way more than that and the capabilities like go back to the genetic stuff and that was not something that we even 
expected. I mean, it was actually even a little add-on kind of thing. Well, if we can, we'll go get the genetic information. And, you know, Ben, you know, showed us the first returns on that. And it was like, oh, wow, okay, this is something. And that's what's really exciting about this. That integration with the micro precise movement data and the banding pulled into it is it's really going to tell us a lot and then it's going to generate as john said twice as many questions of what we want to do next yeah you know and and you you talked earlier about long-term plans for studies like this it would be so nice to have something operational on a scale like this that we could continue on um because you know again we're getting a three-year maybe four-year snapshot with this data, maybe five years of data, depending, you know, we can't keep Ben forever. You know, his PhD program's got to end. So just getting long-term information over time and continuing to mark birds and start looking at climatic impacts and things like that and weather pattern things and all, you know, we, we got a snapshot of, you know, three years of, of deployments and, and how these birds interact with, with the landscape and the habitat, but then also we've got all these all these weather these weather variables and other things we could be looking at disturbance and, and all those kinds of things. And so it'd be really cool long-term to have operational money to like fund something in the long-term, but that's pretty rare. You know, long-term studies of uh, wildlife in general are pretty oh. darn rare. Yeah. You know, and a lot of the work we're doing is, is with on the backs of graduate students. And so they're here for two or three years of field research and, and then they're off. And so, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely on the backs of graduate students. I mean, this this is Ben's project. I mean, the success of this project is 99% his efforts and what he's been able to accomplish. And so much of what we learn about wildlife, anything, is graduate students. So, yeah. Yep. Graduate students everywhere. Pat yeah. Just yeah. Pat yourself on the back. It's yeah. Great, it's a great opportunity for people that are interested in the wildlife, natural resources, the outdoors. It's a very fulfilling career. We can all attest to that. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a passion of all three of ours, and it's a great career choice. It's something at the end of the day, I go home from my, my job at Ducks Unlimited and feel good about what, what I do. And, that, and that's important. You know, It's very important. Yeah, so if you're out there listening, graduate school think about it yeah you know always looking for the next next ben lukanen (laughs) we need more i guess even uh scott even calling out undergraduates like what if someone's interested in getting into this type of work like what kind of undergraduate majors would would kind of come into these type of programs well the the obvious one is if it's called fish and wildlife Mm -hmm. which there really aren't that many still called that now a lot there's departments of conservation biology there's departments of applied ecology um in a lot of places it's something like natural resources where the forestry and the fisheries and wildlife have been combined um you're just gonna have to do a little bit of digging and seeing you know who's offering what courses the kinds of things um that are related to management Mm -hmm. Um, and you're, are you talking like just management as a whole, like whether, like if, if someone wants to specialize in kind of waterfowl, is there, yeah, more just that's because 
that management word is is that just general? That the management word is general. If if you're if you're looking, you really want to do waterfowl, you're going to have to do a little bit more digging because the way universities are organized now are not so much around species-specific areas. They're more systems-oriented. And so it's there's not that many places left where you'll find somebody who's listed as you know a professor of waterfowl ecology. They're more likely to be under something like wetlands ecology, something like that. So you're going to have to get online. In the old days, you had to go find the book in the library, but now you get online and you look at the professors and they'll have blurbs upon the kinds of things they do and if you're interested in that you dump them an email tell them a little bit about yourself tell them you're interested in what they're doing that you want to work on waterfowl and do they have any openings now, having said that, I'm going to retire in a year, so I'm not taking any more students. Ben, <laughs> Ben's my last student, so save yourself some time, because if you send me that email, I'm going to say, sorry, I'm retiring. I'm not taking any more students. It's going to take a little bit of homework to do. Um, the other thing I would encourage students to do, everywhere around the country, there are regional kinds of meetings. There's the thing we have one. Midwest Fish and Wildlife Conference. There's a southeastern one. There's a northwestern one. You can find it. Go to it. They're in your region. Go to it, and you'll meet the people who are doing the kind of work you're interested in. going to take a little effort. It's like finding a job. But the people are out there, and if it's what you're interested in doing, if that's where your passion is, Go for it and keep going for it. You get one rejection letter. I'm retiring. I'm not taking any students. Go, oh, well, enough of that. Nope. You keep going. I have a story on that that I could share <laughs> from a personal experience. When yes. I was applying to graduate school, and it was not all rosy, um, I, I got two in particular. Uh, one was a telegram. That tells you how old I am. I got a telegram from a professor, a very well-known professor. I won't mention names or universities, but... Um, basically in that telegram told me to look at a university that was a little less competitive. So that put a large chip on my shoulder. Um, another one, again, will remain unnamed. <laughs> uh, I put together a nice package, a cover letter, um, covering my experience and interests and my resume and my transcripts. And basically I got my materials back with my cover letter and across my cover letter was written no. And that lit a fire in me um so i actually thank those two individuals i don't think they're with us anymore but um because they did uh propel me to uh be better i guess and and uh and continue pursuing it so i didn't stop there so i was persistent and then but then you know on the other hand then i got i got a f personal phone call from a guy who got my letter and, and then another one reached out to me and it's just like okay so for a couple bad ones there were some great ones too and so it it's finding the right the right person the right situation and and persistence it's like scott said you know if you're passionate about it don't be afraid to talk to uh, you know professors if you got a local university with a fish and wildlife program natural resources or whatever they're calling them and just go knock on doors um, 
face to face is great. You know, usually uh, folks are very happy to to see see people and and interested in helping students out. I mean, that's why Scott got into this field. I'm sure in academia, it's just like yeah, helping students grow and and uh, yeah. yeah. Now it's not going to be a hundred percent, but kind of as a general rule, the universities in your state that have the word state in their title are probably the ones that are going to be more likely to have the programs that you're interested in, not getting the weeds because they're the land-grant universities. Mm-hmm. So if it's a place to start, if you're just going, I don't have no idea where to look, every, every state's got to have one that has a state in their name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> start there. Mm-hmm. Probably Rhode Island doesn't, or New Jersey, but, you know, Ohio State, Penn State, yeah. Michigan mm-hmm. State, Colorado State, Washington State, Oregon State. Yeah. place to start yeah. and would you encourage even high school students to even start looking at those programs as well absolutely if you're already in an undergraduate program and you're thinking about graduate programs find that professor who's in your department and who's closest to what you want to do and talk to them they can tell you who's out there doing that kind of work where the you know people are doing waterfowl research they're going to know yeah yeah, and I think for for high school students, I, I got a call from a, a young man in Indiana once, and you know, want you know his goal was to work for Ducks Unlimited someday, and so he asked me how to do that, and you know, he's, he said that his parents had told him that he was almost too late in thinking about this and like reaching out for advice, and I said, "You're in high school." I said, "You're way ahead of the game." <laughs> I said, "Most of us don't know what we want to do until way later in the game." I mean, I kind of knew, but but you know, he asked really good questions about, "Well, do I?" Do I need to go to a university with a waterfowl wetlands program for my undergrad? I said, well, not necessarily. That would be helpful if that's what your career passion is. And you can, they have waterfowl uh, classes and wetland ecology classes and things like that that you can start taking. That's going to better prepare you for that. But, but also look for volunteer opportunities, you know, depending upon what it is, any kind of wildlife field. If you can volunteer or work as a technician and gain valuable experience, um, you had talked about him having a senior thesis and things like mm-hmm. that. I mean, just get involved, do the, go the extra mile, build that resume, build that experience. I think for me, it was super, super critical because I wasn't self-admitted. I was not the best undergraduate student. I had a whole bunch of other stuff going on in my life and it wasn't priority one. And so I was kind of behind a little bit, you know, as they go to grad school, they can take somebody who's got a 4.0 or a, a 3.0. Well, who are they going to take? Well, not John. So I, I set forth on a path of building my resume and my references and being the hardest worker and take going the extra mile and uh, doing that kind of thing. But that's, that's the level. I mean, that's what, that's what, I think that's what, that's what I'm looking for, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm sure oh. Scott, it's like you're working for, for hard workers and people that are passionate and, and uh, going to do the work. Because it's it, it's a tough degree program. I mean, the field research component of it, I and mean, some are different than others, but it's a it's a lot of work. It's a, it's a commitment. It's a yeah. you know Ben's got a four year whatever commitment, yeah. and, and a master student is a good three year commitment. I mean, it's a it's a commitment both from the academic side of things, the advisor and the student. And so you got to be you got to know that going in, and you got to be passionate about it and make that commitment. Yeah. And we're we're going long, and we're but a couple other quick things. It's not just about grade point average, as John said. Yet yeah, that's important. Okay, you know, if you're walking out the door with a 2.0 grade point average, you're going to have a very hard time 
finding a program. So it's important, but it's not the be-all and end-all. I, in my entire history as a professor, I've never taken a graduate student that did not have some field experience. They had to have some field experience because all field work looks great on paper. It looks like it's going to be so much fun. It's work. Mm -hmm. It's getting up at early hours and doing a lot of work. So if you haven't had that experience and you don't know at least what it's like, sorry, I can't have you learning on something where I've got a contract that's very critical. So experience, what have you been involved in? What are your references? Those are all going to come into play. Second thing I tell, one of the things I tell students is don't let them say no for you. Because if you see something and you go, well, I don't quite fit exactly what they're looking for, so you don't apply for it. You just said no for them. You never gave them a chance to turn you down. Now, you know, maybe they'll turn you down, but if you didn't apply, you're going to never know. And you got to be persistent because what you want to do, and I got to tell you, the most fun I've ever had in this job is going out in the field with students. You know, I like being in the classroom teaching, but going out in the field with students, you know, there's still something about holding the wild duck in your hand. I mean, there's something about going out, you know, one of my biggest thrills is holding baby bears. You hold a bear cub. How many people in the world get to do that? I'm it's a, a great profession to be out there and do that. So, and right now, Ben gets to have all the fun. <laughs> but that's fine because I'm not so sure I could keep up with him in the field anymore. Yeah, I was just saying that too. It's like I don't think I could do what we did back <laughs> yeah. in graduate school now. Yeah. <laughs> ben, how does that make you feel kind of now you're at the start of your career? And now with these guys, where they're at in their careers, how does that make you feel looking forward to what's kind of your next chapter after college? Well, I'm not quite ready to grow up yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, why do you think we got in this field? <laughs> no, I, I, I really enjoy field work still, so, and I really enjoy research. So I want to keep, keep doing research and applied research that answers a management question. And I'm really most interested in waterfowl and game birds. So that's that's what I hope to keep doing is waterfowl and game bird research. Very cool. You know, under the grow up part, a few years back we were out banding geese. It was a nice day in July in a canoe out there herding geese on the lake. I'm getting paid for this. <laughs> Can't beat that. Can't beat that. Yep. Yeah, we, got a, we have a pretty scenic office, you could say. I think that's a pretty good place to, to wrap up here. We've been just, I think it'll be just a little bit of an, over an hour. But uh, I appreciate you guys sitting down for, for an hour, having this conversation really means a lot, um, sharing your stories and, and your knowledge with everyone, all of our listeners. So and thank you for letting me come up here and even document all of this um, and, and doing what you had to do behind the scenes to let me come. So I yeah. Greatly appreciate it. Well, thanks for coming. Thanks yeah. for coming. Thank you yeah, for time great. to come and document. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it. Appreciate you yeah, having you. And that hour went fast. That was great. Yeah, no, conversation. They go, it's they like go a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. um, but appreciate everyone who tuned in to this podcast. Like I said, kind of earlier in the podcast, that this is our last research trip before uh, hunting season. So uh, moving forward, I believe we'll 
we'll be have uh, traveling around the country hunting with students and having them share their stories of what it's like hunting in those areas and, and any other crazy stories that they might have but uh so how do we get in on that <laughs> you gotta go back to college you gotta go back to college John. rodney dangerfield back to school cool. yeah <laughs> um but no we're gonna we're gonna wrap up there thank you again and uh we'll see you in the next one